Welcome to You Wear It Well. Hi, I'm your host, Jeff Heiserman, physical therapist and founder and CEO of Spectrum Ergonomics and Occupational Health Services. We're at the intersection of fashion and technology, otherwise known as wearables. We look at the people, products, and research that make up this exciting world of wearables. Are you a fashion designer, electrical engineer, or someone with the dream of designing a wearable? Apply for membership to my LinkedIn group page, Biotech Fashion, and join in the discussion. Spectrum Ergonomics and Occupational Health Services provides a broad array of design and engineering professionals for your wearable project. We feature the following design specialties, pattern making, digital textile, athletic wear, sensor, fashion, exoskeleton, robotics, and mechatronics. We also offer beta testing of your wearable in our private clinic. You choose the demographics and sample size, send us the sample, and we take care of the rest. For more information, go to www.spectrumergonomics.com for more information. Well, hi, and welcome back to the podcast. And I want to welcome a very special guest on the podcast today. And he's Dr. Fergal Coulter. And he's going to talk a little bit about some research he's done in the past uh, and what he's currently working on now, which is fascinating, and what he's going to be working on, which continues to be fascinating. So, uh, Dr. Coulter, the podcast is all yours. Thanks very much, Jeff. Um, So my name is Fergal, and I'm originally from Ireland. Now I I work in Switzerland in in the Federal Polytechnic in Zurich. And in the past, I've worked in Dublin and done a PhD in, in Nottingham. And my, my research tends to be using 3D printing for creating implantable or various um, prosthetic devices. Okay. I want to have you share with how I first found out about you with doing artificial muscles which I f- find fascinating. So tell us a little bit about that. I know that's what you've already worked on, but tell us a little bit about the artificial muscles, um, how you came about wanting to do that, and some of the the um, the ups and the downs of doing research with the artificial muscles. And explain to the listeners, what what is an artificial muscle? Explain to me too, what is an artificial muscle? Okay, well, first I suppose starting with what an artificial muscle is, this is going to be, I mean, there's lots of different types, but the the specific type that I work on technically is called a dielectric elastomer actuator. And this is a electrically activated, it's made of rubber muscle, where when you apply a voltage, the, the rubber can elongate 
And then when you remove this voltage again, it can contract. So I met quite a few years ago now, I guess, I was doing a, a master's degree. And this was a, a degree that was as much product design as it was engineering. And so I, I wanted to work on something that wasn't just uh, you know, a plastic consumable device, a, a product that would be thrown away. And so the more I thought about it and the more I researched it, I realized that things like implantable or um, prosthetic devices that would aid um, at, at the beginning, what I was looking at was making devices to help people who had had a stroke, particularly in the paralysis of the face and looking at how you could reanimate some of the facial muscles if a person had um, one-sided paralysis in the in the cheek. Um, and over time, I realized that, well, in actuality, trying to reanimate somebody's face is an incredibly difficult thing. So I, I started to simplify my um, my research a little bit and tried to look into just something that would have a gross movement, some um, maybe to help in, an, in the esophagus or something like this, where it's just a simple, you know, simple on-off movement rather than this really intricate movement of the face. And so little by little, I, I tried to figure out how do you, um, how would you go about this? Which kind of technology would you use? What what type of artificial muscle is safe to implant? Because, as I said, there's there's many, many different types, and some use types of chemicals that you just simply can't put in the body. Now, the, the concept of dielectric elastomers, you can use simple rubbers such as silicone. Now, the only problem, of course, with this is they, they use high voltage, you know, in the, the realm of thousands of volts, which could sound a little bit scary. But in in reality, you can encapsulate these things and prevent any voltage from leaking out. So if the whole thing is is um, tightly sealed, then the body can be safe. And how they work is is quite simple. It's if if you're familiar with an electronic capacitor, which is something that holds charge, they work in a very similar way. You have two electrodes, which are charged, you know, with a ground and a, a positive voltage. And when you apply this voltage, the, the electrodes are attracted to each other and create a force. And this force of the electrodes kind of squashes the rubber and creates a, a movement. Now, the, the movement can be quite small, maybe, you know, five to 10%. But there are tricks you can do to amplify this movement. And so um, I, I spent a bit of time figuring out how can you, how can you amplify this movement? And then also how do you, um, how would you say, how do you manufacture it? Because many, particularly at the time, this was 10 or 12 years ago, many research groups were making these things, but they were, they were hand making them, you know? And so handmade things very nice but it's not always repeatable and so if you want it to be a an implantable device it needs to be made repeatable and so with that I was I was very lucky 
uh, uh, one of the the lecturers in the university had bought a number of 3D printers and people weren't really using them in the in the group so they said to me you know do you want to just take one of these printers and see what you can do with it and i thought well why not it's it seems uh, a new exciting field that's that's happening so i took the the printer and i started to um started to play around with it a little bit and rather than you know i'm i'm a natural born tinkerer i suppose uh, you know since since i was a kid i like to take things apart electronic things and put them back together and learn how they work so i took this printer apart and i tried to figure out you know what's an interesting way of making it work so rather than printing with plastics i started to print with rubbers with silicones and from there my my interest grew i could see how you could use these now silicone printers to to create these artificial muscles and so from there it led on to a phd and from there into a my career i guess so the the phd itself then this this moved from trying to do these these muscles for the face into making a, a cardiac assist device so something that would act like a, a second heart in in series with the the natural heart and the idea was to have something that could just augment uh, a heart that might be a bit weak so somebody that was you know maybe coming up to having bypass surgery or even you know more serious a, a full um cardiac replacement so the idea would be to to implant a device that could help pump blood back into the the heart muscle and improve the health of the person before surgery so then when they go in for surgery they would be just this little bit stronger and this this was four four years of research i worked on this um so from there you know obviously I was working on my own in a way. It wasn't a big research group. Um, we just had a few people and everyone had their own project. And my project was this cardiac assist device. So I did as much as I could. Not, It didn't, you know, in four years on your own, you can't end up making a, a fully functioning implantable device. So I, I worked on how to customize 3D printers so they could um, firstly print inflatable structures so part of the part of the requirement of a this type of artificial muscle is the rubber is stretched so what i did was i looked at different ways of stretching silicone before you you actually print onto it and i hit on the idea of using inflation to stretch it so effectively making a balloon and you know, if you've ever inflated a balloon, you'll notice that they're, they're not exactly the same. They're never the same twice. So with that, I, I developed methods of scanning the balloon after inflating it. And then when I scan it, I figured out how do you print these different patterns on the top and use the, the patterns that I print in kind of harder materials to constrain some of the, the stretch of the balloon and make these kind of bistable structures or 
you know, collapsible moving structures. And along with that, examined how can how can this idea be used in in artificial muscles in general. So after a number of years that I finished this this PhD. Now, it, it, as I said, it didn't come to the point where it ever was a full implantable muscle that was still well, 10 or 15 years away, I guess, of, of hard research. Um, but I was, I was pretty lucky in that what I did, I made some videos for YouTube and some blogs, 3D printing blogs and things saw this and started to write some stories about me. And from there, my my career was able to grow a little bit through through publicity. So you had more than your 15 minutes of fame that uh, Andy Warhol, the great American yeah. um, pop artist, uh, always used to, to describe. The... Um, just to spend just a little more time on the artificial muscle because just to let the listeners know that um, with your background in taking a look at a cardiac assistive device and then putting in this artificial muscle, I'm thinking, yes, this may be years ahead, but um, with what we call a myocardial infarction, an MI, uh, the actual, the, the cardiac muscle itself, poor parts of it actually die. They, they don't get the blood flow to it so they can actually die. And the body normally will reroute blood around the area um, by changing the, um, actually the, the structure of the, the artery um, actually will grow out a sprout that goes around. It can work around that area, which is, it's, it's amazing that the body does that. But I'm sitting here thinking, as you're talking about the, the artificial muscles and the cardiac, what, do you see some, some use of the artificial muscle to be able to work to see if the, the, the dead cardiac muscle, so to speak, or that the injured cardiac muscle may not be completely dead, be assisted by the unartificial muscle to continue to allow the chambers to, you know, open and close what we hear is the lub dub when, when you listen to a, through a stethoscope. Well, yes. I mean, and I, I see that there are research groups around the world still still doing these kinds of things. Now, funny, the, you know, some artificial muscles, I guess the, the ones that can create the most force are, use pneumatic pressure. And, you know, in essence, they're balloon pumps. And indeed, the the original, um, the original, inspiration for what we were trying to work on was uh, the inter or an inter aortic balloon pump and so but there's research groups in MIT for example Dr Ellen Roach and she's looking at making these um these balloons that surround the the heart and augment the the pumping and it, you know there's some really wonderful um research coming out from her group i guess the Problem with any um, balloon type pump is it means you're going to have to have a compressed air source, and that compressed air source has to be outside the body. So you can't have it there forever, or you know it's difficult, I guess, because you have a source of infection going through the skin at all times. 
we we hoped that we could make it using electrical force instead but you know the the actual force generated by these muscles it's not huge and so um you know to augment the heart yeah it's still possible but maybe a little more difficult especially if you're trying to work from batteries and you know there's something like a pacemaker battery or something that you can create which you can of course implant that's nice because then you don't have the transdermal connection but you know there's i guess there's always trade-offs mm-hmm. okay i just want to get your opinion on that because I, my my little mind was was racing when you mentioned the the two components there of cardiac assistive and then uh, artificial muscle when we were talking earlier and you were telling me about what you are currently doing i i that, yeah let's talk about that because that 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 is that's really mind-blowing to me because when you talk about 3d printing organs it's like wow I, so so tell us about what you're doing there because it's it, it leaves me speechless when just i can't even think of what else to ask next it's just it, it's it's not that it's so far out there that it's it's like something off of star trek or star wars but it's like wow that we've come to this point where there's potential for for that and, and what it means for people that have had organ failures is, is fascinating it's it's it, like i said i can't even imagine it so tell us a little bit about what you're doing currently with the 3d printing of organs so I guess about five or six years ago, I started this. So I finished my PhD, as I said, and um, managed to get a, some interest via, well, literally just through YouTube videos. Um, so I was I was offered a job in Dublin initially, in, in the University College Dublin, to work on a project that they had started, which was to try and make cellular encapsulation devices which are in as so the idea it's a biohybrid device this is something where they can take um donor cells from in this case it was a, a pancreas because they were looking at trying to work on making an artificial pancreas for type 1 diabetes so in this case we looked at um well okay so the surgeons will they can get donor pancreas and they can refine out the the insulin producing beta cells from that and then they can implant that now this is a a known thing to do it's called the edmonton protocol where they can take these refined beta cells and inject them into a, a person suffering from type 1 diabetes particularly somebody suffering from what's called brittle diabetes which is i guess a more um extreme version of type 1 you're correct it is so the the problem with type 1 diabetes of course is it's autoimmune and the the body so not only is it attacking the the person's own pancreas or beta cells um you could imagine if they're going to have donor cells put in then it's going to really attack those um now they can be put on immunosuppression, of course, but that's that's hardly ideal because you compromise the immune system for everything else as well. So the idea with the cellular encapsulation device is to try and make a little 
bag to protect these cells to hold them in and kind of separating them from the the rest of the body by filters uh, kind of filter membranes which will stop the the white blood cells getting to these devices getting to the cells rather sorry um but still allowing oxygen to pass through and also you know more importantly in this case glucose and insulin to pass through it so you have to make a, a device that's got really really tiny pores in it to allow the passage of these um nutrients and um and insulin through it and also as i say allowing oxygen to transfer to keep the cells alive so we spent a few years working on this again using silicone um it's a nice material to work with and in this case more importantly it's uh, it's a polymer that allows the transfer of oxygen very nicely it's one of it's got an incredible oxygen transfer coefficient so we worked for for years on trying to develop these pouches and not only were we interested in how can you protect the cells from the immune system and how to fool the immune immune system into leaving them alone um but also we tried to figure out can we work on surfaces which would encourage the the vascularization the the growth of blood vessels onto the device and as close as possible to the device because when it comes to its cells are always hungry for oxygen but if they are more than half a millimeter approximately from the nearest blood source they'll start to die so we we try to figure out a way that how do you make a device that really encourages this blood vessel growth to the point that the cells that are encapsulated in the device are you know as close to half a millimeter from the nearest blood source as possible while being separated from the immune system so yeah we um we did a lot of testing and found that through through varying the textures on the device we were able to really encourage blood vessel growth and we've only just you know <laughs> i guess it's very difficult to to publish um papers on this because you know you always meet peer review and your your peers are always tough so we've just a few months ago published our first paper on this on how we made this kind of passive surface that really you know increased the uh, the the vascularization of our devices at the same time we kept on working with um you know unfortunately it's with animal testing but this is the you know the problem with implantable devices um we we did a lot of work on um implanting our devices seeing could we get uh um could we get the animals in some cases small animals such as rats and then larger animals pigs um to regain glycemic control after they had well first of all the the poor animals are given diabetes by by a certain enzyme and then we try and cure it again so um we were you know it, it's difficult because there's so many new technologies going but we have 
seen really positive results from this. And kind of three out of four animals, you know, I mean, we, we tried many, many, but, you know, 75% of the um, the animals that we tried regained a level of glycemic control over eight to 10 weeks. So this is, this is really good. It's a, you know, it's a start because such research takes, again, decades. So, yeah, that's um, one of the, the strands of research. Simultaneously, while working in Dublin, I also started to do part-time work in Zurich, where I'm now based. And here we were looking at printing heart valves. I guess this was a little bit closer to what I was doing originally with the cardiac assist device, albeit rather than artificial muscles, we were looking at just taking the CT scan of a, a person um, and trying to make customized heart valves. So rather than rather than create, you know, I mean, of course, there's many, many heart valves on the market at the moment, but they're made generically, at, you know, just different sizes depending on the, the size of the person. So what we tried to do was see, could we make heart valves that worked well, that were really customized per person using 3D printing? Because this is the the joy, I guess, with 3D printing is every every device you make can be a one-off. So this is something that we're still working on. You know, we've done some publications in the past. We um, we did testing, only mechanical testing at the beginning. Happily, in some ways, you know, with something like a, a heart valve, you can do a huge amount of testing in machines before it ever goes near an animal. So this is what we did first. We we really did a lot of research on the the hemodynamics of the the leaflets of the valve, but also the incorporating a section of aorta into it. So we would have a, an area that acts a little bit like a stent, um, but a, a kind of soft stent because at the moment, the stent that's used to put most heart valves in place, they're made of metal and you know they're expanded in place. Um, and that metal can, you know, over time it, it can create a bit of wear and tear on the heart around the area because of course, with all this pumping, um, you know, pumping against a piece of metal, you can imagine it, it creates damage to the tissue. So we were looking at trying to make softer, you know, using softer polymers to act as a stent. And because they would be, you know, exact fit, then they don't need to be quite as um, as hard as metal. So this is ongoing um, for the last few years as well. And, you know, we've like everything it's it's quite a few years away but it's a it's a very rewarding and challenging area to work in i, I want to go back to a little bit back to the part where you were talking about working with the pancreas for um you know inducing diabetes in in the lab animal and then you know actually they get their function back eight to ten weeks is not a lot of time that's very mm. impressive if eight to 10 weeks and what, three out of the four animals, that's remarkable. Yeah. it <laughs> In truth, it surprised me too. Um, you know, it's still, 
I guess it's not what you'd call long term, but you know, with with all of these implants, there there's ethic committees that say you know you can only do your your experiment for so long before you have to um, sacrifice the animal. So I guess the the project is on, or the project itself, the funding finished. It was funded by the European Union, um, and we had many many partners, many people working on it, different vets, different anatomists, um, you know, engineers like like ourselves. And so I guess with these results, as we, we slowly publish them and, you know, also verify all the results, um, more funding is being applied for now. So hopefully we get more and get to continue on and do longer time points, see, you know, the the implication of these devices over months rather than weeks and so that it's really hopeful you know um and simultaneously what what's happening with the devices that we manufactured they're also being tested um using human cells donor donor cells and we're finding that the the human cells can live in these pouches you know, under lab conditions, of course, for for a nice period of time. And it, this is also really exciting because this is something that these little artificial muscles can be, or sorry, artificial organs can be used to do testing of drugs and this kind of thing, using real human cells rather than animals, which, you know, if you're testing drugs for humans, it's great if you can test on human cells rather than using animals because it's much more realistic in the end. So in a way this is this is also really exciting that you know we've kind of almost a, a platform technology that is has potential for helping both others to research and also maybe medical devices if if all goes well or implantable devices. Yeah, it is. It's a it's a wonderful thing again being able to do things that are going to improve the quality of life for people that um, in ways that we you know twenty years ago we only could dream about that happening. Hey, if you're a startup wearable company and you'd like to be able to get your information on this podcast please contact me at my company website, www.spectrumergonomics.com. I'd love to be able to feature a little bit about what you're doing to let the world know about your wearable. Well, thanks for joining me at the intersection of fashion and technology. And may you wear it well.